2024 will be a big year in global politics. A slew of important general elections will be held across the developing world, in India, Pakistan, Indonesia, and South Africa, just to name a few. Wars are also likely to continue to rage in Gaza, Syria, Sudan, Myanmar, and elsewhere, driving millions of people deeper into poverty and displacement. Though there is some hope that in at least some of these conflicts, there remains space in which to find political solutions. But 2024 is set to be a year of high stakes in the West, too. Next summer, we'll see parliamentary elections in the EU, and by the year's end, the US presidential election and, in all likelihood, a British general election. In fact, it could be the first time in more than 30 years that citizens of the English-speaking world's two nuclear powers, Britain and America, pick their leaders in the same calendar year. All of this while the West remains riven with competing ideas over how to resolve the conflict in Ukraine, the first land war on European soil in a generation. This is Beyond the Headlines, and I'm your host, Suleiman Hakimi. In this episode, we're talking about US and UK ballots and Ukrainian bullets, building a picture of what elections and war will mean for the Western world's political outlook in 2024. Next November, Americans will elect a new president, or elect to keep their current one, Joe Biden. Mr. Biden's predecessor, Donald Trump, remains cast as the frontrunner to take him on on behalf of the Republican Party. Meanwhile, Mr. Trump's Republican rivals, people like Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, who still hope they might be able to shove him aside and clinch the nomination, are finding themselves drawn further into the extremes of their party's positions. But it remains anyone's guess as to who will win, within the Republican Party and in the race for the White House. And that leaves extraordinary uncertainty at the top of the world's richest and most powerful country, because the Democrats and Republicans have set out two completely different visions for America, both at home and abroad. To understand what we might expect, I'm joined now by the Nationals' Washington bureau chief, Tom Watkins. Welcome, Tom. Tom, can you just tell us, um, or start by just giving us a sense of the opinion landscape in America right now, uh, which party is in the lead as we come to the end of this year, and and how confident can we be that we'll see a Biden-Trump rematch in 2024? Thank you, Suleiman. Thanks for having me. The polls are bouncing up and down every day. They show over the last few weeks that um, Donald Trump is slightly ahead of President Biden in a hypothetical matchup for next year. However, um, there's really not enough daylight between the two to, at this point, make any uh, certain claims about who would win. Um, there's a lot of factors at play here, and there's a huge difference between um, who responds to polls and who actually is going to get out on voting day. So obviously the results would be encouraging for Donald Trump. He also faces massive headwinds next year, which we can perhaps get into. Um, and uh, there's some alarm in Joe Biden's Democrat Party that um, he's he's lagging much further behind than he should be at this point in the election cycle. So really, it's um, it seems like it's uh, much too early to say it who is um, in the poll position. So we just have to see how that plays out. And before we talk about Trump, I just want to say it's, I mean, it's rare for an incumbent American president not to stand again for their party. So Biden seems the obvious Democratic candidate for next year. Um, but a lot of voters are wary of his advanced age, um, to put it lightly. Is that the only thing uh, Biden has going against him when it comes to securing victory next year, or, or are there other issues with um, with the Democratic campaign? The Democratic campaign is in somewhat of a dis state of disarray at the moment. Um, 
Democrats are notoriously feeble when it comes to selling their own message, and the Republicans are very good at um, taking a soundbite and running with it. So what the Democrats have currently managed to um, achieve is three years of uh, relative economic prosperity. However, that's in no way translating to um, opinion polls. Americans still feel they're getting hammered by inflation. Um, they're not seeing the um, the prices drop at the pump quite as much as they would have liked to. And of course, the big one, um, really the very big one for next year is the interest rates are very high in America. They're at about 8%, which basically means most people who want to move are unable to. They either can't afford to get a mortgage or they can't afford to sell their homes. So um, as previous presidents have often noted, um, Ronald Reagan famously, who asked um, his challenger, or when he was challenging um, Jimmy Carter in 1980, he said, do you feel better off now than you did four years ago? Um, there's still a lot of time between now and November. It might be that the Democrat message um, is um, more widely received by November, but I think that's the question that most Americans will be asking themselves. Um, there's other factors at play as well, obviously, uh, including the war in Gaza and what's happening in Ukraine. And then there's um, a whole raft of domestic policies as well. Um, first and foremost, probably, is uh, the issue of um, immigration across the southern border. Yeah. And when, when it comes to um, immigration, I mean, the Republicans have been very tough on that. Donald Trump, probably the toughest, at least in terms of rhetoric. Um, but Trump, uh, even though he hasn't participated in any Republican debate so far, um, seems to have uh, you know, sway over the party, um, at least over, over the other people running. Um, I think Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are the front runners, but do they have any chance at all of displacing Donald Trump at the top of the party? So, yes, I think actually there is still time for some interesting maneuvers to happen. So Donald Trump, as you noted, is, is uh, very much ahead um, overall in the Republican polls. However, if we look at New Hampshire and Iowa, which um, Iowa is the first um, caucus, uh, which is a kind of a privately held um, primary. Uh, it's happening on January the 15th. Um, Trump is far ahead there. He's at 58%, followed by DeSantis. This is according to a poll from um, yesterday. Uh, but if we go down to um, New Hampshire, which is the, the second or the first primary, but the, you know, the second big contest, Trump's at 44. And then interestingly, Haley is at 29 and DeSantis drops down to 11. So Trump doesn't have a plurality of votes there. He's at 44%. So if Haley, who actually has been picking up momentum and is sort of gaining traction as, a, as an alternative, um, if she can coalesce the sort of non-Trump vote around her, then she actually has a, a reasonable chance. Uh, there's, still, there's still a lot of time for interesting stuff to happen in my view. The stakes for America seem pretty high in this election, um, higher than they have been in a long time. Um, can you give us a sense of what the the Biden vision uh, for the world looks like um, versus the Republican vision for the world? Um, so for those of us who are, who are speaking from abroad, uh, what does this American election mean? Why, why should the rest of the world kind of care about it? There's a lot at stake in this election. It's not just for America. If we look at what's just happened at COP28, um, there's been a, a real shift in the conversation around um, around fossil fuels and hydrocarbons. Um, America is or has been in energy independent before. Under the Biden administration, there's been a big push towards renewables. Um, Trump has vowed to to drill as much as possible. 
to open up new um, leases across um, Alaska and elsewhere um, in the west of the US. So that's that's one issue that can impact globally in ta- just in terms of pure carbon emissions. Obviously, then we've got the war in Ukraine. Um, the Democrats under President Biden have been um, very supportive of President um, Vladimir Zelensky, have uh, flowed about $17 billion in military assistance to the country. The Republicans are saying that it's too much, it's not enough, they're not getting the results. So I think we expect under Donald Trump um, to see a fairly um, immediate and indefinite cessation of any further aid to Ukraine. And the other issue that's really um, going to feature strongly, obviously, is um, what happens in the Middle East. We've got Joe Biden here walking something of a tightrope in terms of um, trying to support America's ally Israel while also pushing for um, humanitarian aid and conversations around what happens next and um, whether you think it's effective or not, pushing for more careful Israeli striking. Um, There'd been no such restraints under a Trump administration. He's staunchly pro-Israel. He's um, already recognized Jerusalem as the capital and um, has given um, no attention whatsoever to the two-state solution or the Palestinian cause. Um, So those are just some of the things that are immediately on the table. And oh yeah, going back to Ukraine, by the way, he said that he's he's hinted strongly that he would um, like to leave NATO, which would obviously be um, a huge blow for the alliance. Yeah, and that speaks to my next question. I mean, in the Trump era, uh, we saw a kind of fracturing of the West as a united front on the world stage. Um, do you think that that's been restored uh, at all? Or to what extent do you think that's been restored under Biden? And are we going to see a refracturing uh, once this election is over? So the US under Joe Biden has resort- has returned to a much more traditional um, US stance on the global stage where it's taking an active role along traditional lines in terms of um, bolstering alliances, working with allies and partners, and trying to be the um, the predictable um, partner in the room. Donald Trump ruled uh, through edict often. He would uh, put stuff on Twitter. He kept his advisors getting, and he was very fractious in terms of his relationships, especially with Germany and Western Europe. I think if we can expect anything, it's that we would expect to see a lot more of that uh, were he to be elected again. Yeah. And do you think, uh, I mean, when Trump was elected, we had, uh, well, we had Trump's election and the Brexit vote um, happening very close to each other. And there was a sense that there was a kind of contagion, um, both across the West, but also across the world of uh, Trump's brand of of populist uh, right-wing politics. Um, Do you think after this kind of um, period of having Biden and having a little more traditional uh, American control um, on the world stage, uh, do you think such a strong resurgence of populism uh, is likely to come back if if Trump takes the White House? Very interesting question. Um, it's not just America that is going to the ballots next year. It's a it's a huge year for elections. We're going to see India. Uh, we're going to see Britain. We're going to see the U.S. and many other democracies heading to the polls. So uh, it's going to be a real sort of global uh, litmus test in terms of um, which way the pendulum swings. Uh, I'm not personally convinced that we're going to see this, um, this, the turnout that Trump needs to get back into the White House. But again, like I said at the top, we'll have to wait and see till we're a bit closer. Across the Atlantic, Britain, the other great English-speaking power of the Western world, is set to have its own general election. 
one that will determine whether the Conservative Party, which has been in power for more than a decade, will continue to govern. With just 172,000 members in a country of 67 million people, few political parties in the West have had such a disproportionately large impact on the world stage as Britain's Conservatives, also known as the Tories. In 2010, the party, then led by David Cameron, ousted its rival, Labour, from government for the first time since the 70s. Six years later, the Tories irreversibly changed the nature of politics in Europe by taking Britain out of the European Union. That decision also injected chaos into politics in Britain. The country's had four prime ministers in seven years. Two of them, including the incumbent, Rishi Sunak, elected only by members of the Conservative Party. There are other consequences, too. The Conservatives have helped Britain become one of the leading supporters of Ukraine's efforts to defend itself against Russia's ongoing invasion, a war that has drawn battle lines in Europe and threatened direct confrontation between nuclear powers. On December 19th, David Cameron, who is now Britain's Foreign Secretary, said the UK will continue to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. But next year, Britain faces a general election in which the country's 46 million eligible voters will decide whether they have had enough of conservative rule and if they want to take their country in a different direction. To help us understand these issues, we have with us Damien McElroy, the National's London Bureau Chief, and Chris Blackhurst, former editor-in-chief of the Independent newspaper and a regular columnist in the National's opinion pages. Chris and Damien, welcome. Damien, I just want to start with you. Uh, if you could just tell us, why does this UK election matter, both for Brits and for the rest of the world? So w what's at stake here? I think the best way of looking at it is it is a gateway election in the sense that the country has gone through a lot of turmoil. It's gone through um, extreme political upheavals, and it is at a time when the world um, has unprecedented challenges of uh, a sort of modern type and not only in, in foreign policy terms but also in you know what is the economic model etc so um if you have a stable government that comes out of it just from that point of view not saying who wins or loses then you get a chance to uh, start again do over however you want to put it and that in itself is very important because this government has essentially reached the end of, of the road in terms of its own how it operates and its own supporters and um, having um, policies that cut through and work. Um, and those are three things that essentially any government should be aiming to do and deliver. Then you get to the point of, you know, who wins? Uh, Labour have been out of power for a long time. They've uh, reconcile themselves to losing power firstly and then they have looked at what sort of government they would like to be and that uh, con those conditions weren't really in place at any of the previous elections since um, 2010. So Labour is, is much more fit for office and has serious people in serious positions who have come up with an approach that is really quite centrist uh, quite uh, managerial, but also seeks to make changes in where um, the things that are glaringly obvious and um, to, um, you know, sort of relaunch the economy in some ways, to look to have um, a, a more proactive approach in terms of foreign policy in other areas, things that can make up the gaps that have appeared uh, in uh, over the last 
um, six years of um, Conservative Party infighting, etc. And, you know, the irony is this was supposed to be what the last election delivered, but then came the pandemic, then came more infighting, then came um, essentially government incompetence, and um, the country is, you know, tired of all those things, and so it needs a fresh start. Chris, would you agree with that? Um, what what would you say the stakes are for for the rest of the world when it comes to Britain's election? Yes, I agree with that. This is a um, Damien used the phrase gateway. Um, it's a landmark election. Um, uh, every so often, the, the way it works is that the the country the country is ready and wants change. We last saw this in 1997 when Labour swept to power with Tony Blair. We're in a similar position now. If the polls are correct, and I think they are, um, the country is fed up with the Tories. We've had a succession of prime ministers, which have been disastrous, poor handling of the pandemic, um, all the things that Damien mentioned. And so the country is ready now for a Labour government. In terms of what it means to the rest of the world, not so nationalistic, not so hidebound, probably more open and willing to cooperate and discuss. Certainly on, on a domestic level, Labour's hands are rather tied. They don't have much spare money for anything. The Tories have, in a sense, I was going to use the word trampled for that. <laughs> That's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but they they have fallen back on old, old conservative ways and the way they treat um they treat other nations. Um, there's been a sense of arrogance around Britain and the way, way we perform on the world stage. I think that the there will be a change. There'll be a change of attitude. Um, and that, of course, nowhere will that be more apparent than, than with Europe. The Tories effectively took us out of Europe. Labour will not take us back in, but they will take us a lot closer. So obviously... The Brexit vote was heavily contentious. Um, it, it, the referendum result came on a knife edge. Uh, since then, I think there's uh, a sense out there that there's a bit of Brexit regret going on um, throughout the UK. Do you, do you think that's true? And what, what impact, Chris, do you think that's had on Labour's uh, platform? I mean, how, how much closer are they going to take Britain back to Europe? I think it's true to an extent. It's not as true... This makes sense. It's not as true as it once was. We've now grown used to Brexit. Our economy has been surprisingly, and this has surprised people, surprisingly resilient post the pandemic. The German economy and the French economy, but Germany in particular, absolutely suffering. And we're not as, we've got regret. Um, there's no question. Um, and it's very hard even for Brexiteers to name a tangible benefit of Brexit. I mean, the one they fall back upon is, well, we've got, we now have our own say on things and we're independent. Well, having our own say on things and being independent, that hasn't really, we've not really seen the benefits of that. But saying that, um, the economy has not been performing as badly as some people thought, and myself included, I admit that. It's not been that bad, and actually, versus the EU economies, it's not in bad shape at all. So, I don't think there's any any rush to rejoin, and that would only spark. I mean, look, the the people who voted for Brexit, yes, some of them may well have regrets, but 
they haven't really gone away. All it would do would be to spark another monumental fight. So Starmer hasn't got the appetite for that. But what he has got, I think, is the is is the willingness to get closer to Europe, to engage with them, to have um, more open market in goods and people um, without being in the EU. And the closer we can get to that, the better. And Damien, do you think that there's been any kind of change in Europe's attitude towards the UK? And will this election have, have any bearing on that? I do think there has been a European change towards pragmatism, yes. Um, I think for several reasons that um, the European countries feel that there is not as much progress as they would like in terms of their agenda on the world stage. And uh, certainly it is true with Ukraine that they look to the UK to be a forward-leaning player in that situation. And I do think the Europeans would welcome more kind of coordination and heft by working with the UK on issues that relate to um, areas like the Indo-Pacific and the Middle East as well. So I think, for example, what we are seeing in the weeks that have followed the attacks by Hamas in out of Gaza and what has happened since, that the UK has obviously taken a very distinctive line and um, other countries have either been somewhere close to that or have changed more quickly than the UK. But there is a kind of need among the kind of European uh, diplomatic corps and the ministers to make sure that they are as closely aligned as they can be, especially the big countries like Germany and France. So I think the world as it is and what has happened has um, resulted in um, a more, as I say, pragmatic attitude by the Europeans and a recognition that the UK augments some of the things that they would want to do or provides them some leadership or cover in, in other areas. And I think there's a kind of consensus that it's senseless to have each side just following its own track in that sense. And obviously, they would want to see uh, UK diplomats and, and foreign ministers and uh, representatives, you know, uh, open to working with them. And if they see that, then they'll, uh, uh, under the current alignment, they will they will take that. And you also see issues like um, the migration issue, which is a shared challenge for all these countries, uh, manifesting in different ways in each country. But, you know, the UK is part of a continuum there. And, uh, for example, Rishi Sunak has built a very effective a very actually high profile working relationship with the Italian prime minister. And uh, that is not only on practical issues of migration around the Mediterranean, etc., but it does seem to be an actual political friendship that each side is willing to display on behalf of the other and, and, and back each other up or boost each other. So there are, there are things going on that are quite in my backyard uh, for the UK. Uh, and the Europeans are not drawing kind of battle lines in the way that they might have done in 2018, 2019. Yeah, I mean, speaking of battle lines, Damien, you mentioned the war in Ukraine. Um, I'm just wondering, we're coming up on two years in February since Russia's invasion, um, which brought about obviously the first major land war in Europe uh, since the 90s. 
At this stage, what would you say the impact of, on the continent as a, as a whole has been? I mean, is there more division than unity on Ukraine, or do you think that there can be European solidarity to the end? It's shifting in ways that um, people fear could turn out treacherous, I think, is is probably where we're at at the moment. The um, There was obviously tremendous unity in reaction. There is a kind of top-level consensus that, um, you know, um, Russia as a attack could not stand and that it would be a very dangerous thing if it was able to benefit from its actions in Ukraine and the Europeans saw that as a as a threat to them and you had the expansion of NATO, etc. At the moment, you know, there's there's a very great fear related to the US elections. I, I would say that the American money will in some way get interrupted, if not, uh, uh, you know, uh, peter out. And 2024 is seen as a really treacherous year. It's also rebounded that thought in particular to, um, you know, can Europe take up the burden and therefore do other Europe constituent European countries, are, are they fully behind that? And the answer is beginning to be no. And that's why I think uh, it's it's treacherous. There are countries at a small level like um, Poland farmers being able to resist Ukraine grain coming into the country or at a big level, like Hungary saying, we want to veto the latest tranche of money for Kiev uh, because we don't believe this is the way to go. And by the way, we have still large natural gas contracts with Moscow, etc. So all those things are fissures, and the Europeans are rightly quite worried that those could grow into very wide chasms. And Chris, I, I just want to ask you the uh, the final question, and it's a bit of a big picture question. Um, so in the Trump era, we had a period where I think people thought that the West uh, had suddenly become very divided um, from what it was in, you know, in, say, the Obama era or even the 90s. Um, and I think since Joe Biden was elected, uh, there's been a sense that the, the gaps have been bridged between, you know, the UK, um, Europe and America and, and even Australia and Canada and so on. Do you think that Ukraine has been a kind of further uniting factor for the West. And are there other sort of big issues that the West will face as a region in 2024? Definitely right about Ukraine. Um, although, as Damien points out, um, there's a, a certain Ukraine fatigue now setting in. Um, and you're starting to see, starting seeing divisions. I think it's going to be very hard for the West to operate as one unit with regard to Ukraine. They have done reasonably successfully to date, but as Damien mentioned, you've got some European nations who are much closer geographically to Ukraine, much more affected by it. Holding the line is going to be difficult. I think areas of common interest for the West, the main one, the elephant in the room diplomatically is China. China remains a worry and a conundrum. Um, as to what it's really about, what its intentions are. Um, that is one thing that unites the West, suspicion of China. Another is AI, growing fears about AI. Um, and then the other is, is, which I would also tie with migration, which is climate change. I think those things are going to hold countries together. But 
the prospect of Donald Trump winning the American election, that is seriously very, very unnerving. That's it for today. A special thank you to our guests, Tom Watkins, Damian McElroy, and Chris Blackhurst. If you enjoyed our show, please remember to subscribe to the Beyond the Headlines podcast to get all the latest episodes as soon as they come out. This episode was produced by Doa Farid, Bill Green, and Arthur Edison. And I'm your host, Suleiman Hakimi. <laughs>